Now, I want us to look briefly um, at the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. You might remember some months ago, we were looking at the words, in fact, the quite um, sobering words of our Lord Jesus Christ. More than that, frightful words of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he warned some, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that there would be many people in the future, in the day of judgment, who turn up and say um, that they, they expect to be admitted into heaven and the Lord Jesus is going to say to many people, depart, I didn't know you. Now, that is the most, probably the most serious um, situation that you could comprehend, where a person who has done stuff in the name of the Lord, including prophesying, we read it there um, a few months ago, and including other aspects of service for the Lord, so they thought, but never entered into a personal relationship with him. So, And that took us back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord Jesus sets out, it, well actually it's his manifesto of uh, the kingdom that he is t- about to bring in. And he starts that off in verse 1 of chapter 5, and we'll just read you the first five verses. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now we've paused there. It's a, very, it's a long and it's a beautiful and marvellous um, sermon that the Lord Jesus gives. But what he is doing is setting out the, the graphic differences, the contrasts between normal human thinking and the thought that is behind the kingdom of God. We, if, we, if we were to go through that, we find out it has been said that so and so and so, but I say unto you. It has been said, but I say unto you. And this is where we learn a totally different orientation um, in the kingdom of God to what it is in the kingdom of men. And what I want us to look at, we, you might recall we did look at the first of those, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is a very primary attitude of heart that brings a person to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The picture you might recall there is a very negative picture. It's of a person who is so ashamed of himself, is so pitifully poor, he's got one hand covering his face and the other hand reaching out for help. He knows he needs help. He knows he's not deserving of help. It is a pitiful situation. And that's a picture of a person coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. I've got no- nothing in my hand I bring, the, the hymn writer put it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. That's the picture we have in the first of these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the second is like unto it. Um, blessed are those who mourn. But I wanted us today to just consider the significance of the next beatitude, the next blessing that the Lord Jesus has here about the meek. Now, you, please take note of as you go through this um, Sermon on the Mount, 
the contrasts between how men think, how we naturally think, how our culture moulds us to think, and how the Word of God presents the truth to us. If we were to, um, well, we do it, uh, anybody running a business or a large organisation, if they're going to have people come into that organisation, in our bureaucracies we have um, position descriptions and um, key selection criteria and all that sort of stuff, and in, and in other organisations that are done on a more um, informal and entrepreneurial basis, the owner of the business has certain expectations of people who are going to be brought into the organisation, who are going to have an active part in it. Now, the Lord is different from that. He does, he's not saying here, you've got to be this, you've got to be that, you've got to be other thing before you can come in. He is port- portraying to us what he will do with the person who comes to him. Sinners, Jesus will receive. That we come to him as we are. As the hymn writer put it, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Now we need to have that in mind as we look at these characteristics. And meekness is the one that I'd like us to briefly look at this morning. The um, Zondervan Bible Dictionary describes it as mildness, gentleness of character, and Zondervan Academic as gentle. There's some some very helpful comments if you look up authorities. MacArthur Bible Topical Guide says gentleness, and in his commentary, John MacArthur describes this word as meaning gentle of spirit, meek, submissive, Quiet, as in quietness and confidence shall be your strength, and tender-hearted. The Bridgeway Bible Dictionary says um, that it's humility, gentleness and kindness. In fact, the commentator there says, in the Bible, meekness is so closely linked with humility, gentleness and kindness that the reader may have difficulty distinguishing between them. Stephen Alford, in his wonderful sermon on this point, um, regards it as selflessness as opposed to selfishness. Matthew Henry, from a bygone era, those who quietly submit themselves to God, to his word, to his rod, who follow his directions and comply with his designs and are gentle toward all men. And C.H. Spurgeon, we quote him, we've already quoted him, I'll quote a, a paragraph from him. He says, The third beatitude, that's the one about meekness, is of a higher order than the first two. There's something positive in it to virtue. The first two are rather expressive of deficiency. What I haven't got is what brings me to Christ. But there's something supplied here. A man is poor in spirit. That is, he feels that he lacks a thousand things that he ought to possess. The man mourns, that is, he laments over his state of spiritual poverty. But now there is something really given to him by the grace of God, not a negative quality, but a positive proof of the work of the Holy Spirit within his soul so that he can manifest 
meekness of character. Well, that's enough of the definitional side of things. Um, I thought we might just consider what the Lord Jesus is getting at here and the significance of it, um, and I might say that it relates very closely to the concept that you were speaking about this morning, brother, of thankfulness to God. I wanted us to think just in terms of three major segments. First of all, the principal virtues of, of me, a meekness of character, the, the virtues of it, the permanent values that are associated with this concept of meekness in a person and the promised victories. So those three things, the virtues, the values and the victories that are linked with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and of other scripture in relation to the matter of uh, meekness of character. Well, about the, these virtues then. Blessed are the meek, he says at, at um, verse 5. And the first of the um, virtues I'd like to um, mention, and you'll probably th- be able to think of many others, but I'll just touch on a few. The first of them is an attitude of yieldedness towards God. A man who is going to manifest what the Lord Jesus is speaking about here and upon whom the Lord Jesus is uh, placing blessing, that man, that person, is one with a yielded heart before the living and true God. David could say at Psalm 25 verse 9, the humble or meek, he guides in justice, and the meek, he teaches his ways. One of the interesting um, applications of the word meek has to do with the, um, in, in the Greek usages of it, has to do with the training of an animal that is brought under control. So, a wild horse that is become rideable, or um, a dog who is taught to look after the sheep and, and so on. And the truth of it is that no one can become a person manifesting this quality of meekness um, who is not under the sovereignty of the living and true God. Those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a, a, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But I quote you the words of the Lord Jesus from this same Matthew's Gospel at chapter 11 and verse 29. These are his words. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's a restfulness, there's a blessedness in coming with a yielded heart to our Lord. Take my yoke upon you. First of all, subject ourselves to the yoke of God. I don't know that... um, Many of us know what it is to use a yoke. We, um, some people used to carry water when we didn't have irrigation systems as we do today on a yoke over your shoulder with drums hanging down both sides carrying water. We used a yoke to harness up our horses um, for ploughing, a double, a, a double harness for uh, two horses, a single yoke for one horse, um, And that's the way that the horse became a a useful instrument or um, a useful uh, creature on the farm. The Lord Jesus is saying, 
Look, take my yoke upon you, and then you will find rest unto your soul. So one of the preliminaries to knowing the matter of yieldedness in our heart is submission to the deity and the sovereignty of the living God. The second of them is a lowliness towards self. First of all, a yieldedness to God. Secondly, a lowliness concerning oneself. The pride of um, and arrogance that's natural to us as um, men and women is something that's anathema to this concept. In Philippians chapter 2 at verse 3, writing to that beloved congregation in Philippi, the apostle says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself or herself. An exhortation like that, brothers and sisters, is worth thinking about. Let nothing be done through selfishness and ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I've heard um, this commented on in a way that says, um, well, actually, I am better than so-and-so and so-and-so. I'm sorry, but the... That this is not the case. The man who wrote this, these words, the man who penned that exhortation to the Christians at Philippi, was a man of great learning and amazing achievement under the hand of God, but described himself as the chief of sinners. He had come to that first point that we saw in the first of the um, Beatitudes, the man who knows that he's got in his, himself, in his own nature, he's got nothing that is appealing to God. But that our best, as we were reminded this morning, the best we can do in our natural state is like um, being clothed in filthy rags. Well, that's the second of these virtues. The first, yieldedness to God. The second, a lowliness um, concerning ourselves. The, uh, one of the first steps that we need to learn is that of um, the fact that we are not what society keeps telling us and that we like to hear. You're pretty good, son. You're doing well. Um, your, uh, your character is, is exemplary. No, it's not. The uh, great Roman teacher of oratory, um, Quintilian, he had, he's, he's credited with having said... They would no doubt be excellent students if they were not already convinced of their own knowledge. Um, and we can convince ourselves so readily of how good we are. Um, but the danger, the Lord Jesus follows it up later in the sermon that unless we're, um, we're those who know him, have submitted to him, then we don't cut it with God. One of the meekest men in all the world, if we need an example of this, would be John the Baptist. This man was described by the Lord Jesus as so great that there was none greater born of a woman. This was a man who had accolades from the Son of God himself. 
But his view of himself was that Christ must increase, but I must decrease. What are you? I'm only a voice in, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's all I am. I'm, a, I'm nothing in my own right worth talking about. I'm, as a matter of fact, he, in introducing the Lord Jesus, you recall he said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and tie up his shoelaces, the latchet of his shoe. That's an example of a man who was great in achievement and yet was of meekness of character. This is a man who uh, Josephus, the uh, Jewish uh, historian, wrote about. And um, he said that years after he disappeared from the scene, people were still, would still tremble at the thought of John the Baptist's ministry amongst them. But this is the man who had that kind of um, understanding of his own status before God. Far from being filled with his own importance, he could see the significance of the Lord Jesus and his own um, lack of significance. Well, there we have um, that, and we come to the third of those attitudes, and it's gentleness towards men. Yieldedness to God, lowliness toward ourselves, but gentleness towards others is another characteristic of the person who's manifesting meekness such as, imp as imparted by the Lord. In Colossians 3 verse 12, Paul exhorts, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. That's a lovely accumulation of characteristics that um, combine to, uh, in, in this word meekness. And to put it on. It's not ours, naturally. It needs to be imparted to us. And we'll get to that a little later on. But David knew what that, was, what that gentleness was towards others. Um, in 2 Samuel 22, at uh, verse 36, David said, you have, also given me the you have also given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness has made me great. This great, the greatest of the kings of uh, Israel was able to say his gentleness has made him great. That's where his strength lay. Alexander McLaren put it this way, and I'm quoting from his expositions of Holy Scripture. The soldiers of Christ are to be priests and to fight the battles of the kingdom robed not in jingling shining armour or with sharp swords or with fierce and eager bitterness of controversy, but with the meekness which overcomes. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, also commenting on this matter, says, to be meek means, and I quote now, we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. It's, a me it's that quality that we see in some of the truly great men of the Bible. For example, Abraham. This man, Abraham, and his um, nephew Lot reached the stage where they were going to have to part their ways. He is the senior man. He is the patriarch of the clan. And here's the young fellow 
they're going to part their ways and that a choice has to be made. Who takes this bit of land? Who takes that bit of land? The great man conceded that prerogative to young Lot and he made the wrong decision but the point of of it is that the man who had the right to choose wherever he liked was prepared to forego that. There's Moses in the book of Numbers. He's described in Numbers 12 verse 3, very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And it's interesting to look at the context in which that descriptor of Moses is given. It's when there's just been some very nasty things done by his brother and sister towards him, particularly Miriam, towards him. And, um, but what was his response? Not to start cracking the whip and saying, listen, I'm in charge here, I'm the boss man here, you'll do it the way I say or else. It was before the Lord and the Lord exercised his prerogative to put things right. The attitude of Moses was the criticism is made, I'm not going to respond aggressively to that, I'll let the Lord deal with that situation, which he did. It was unjustified criticism but beautiful meekness to which the Lord reacted wonderfully. And then we, we have, if we're looking for examples, King David is another outstanding example. You remember when he was fleeing before Absalom, his son, there'd been a rebellion, and that, what was that fellow's name, who came out cursing and swearing, and was it Shimei? Anyway, whatever his name was, this fellow came out and uh, cursing King David, And one of the uh, warriors amongst David's people said, just give me your word that you're okay and I'll take that fellow's head off. And David's attitude was, no, I'm I'm being afflicted under the hand of God. I'm prepared to carry through with this and if the Lord wants to reinstate me, he'll do that, which in fact God did in due course. So we've got plenty of examples in the scripture of the, great, the really great people manifesting what our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about here in meekness. It's not by any stretch of the imagination the characteristic of, um, of uh, failures and also rands. It's that which is portrayed here for us right through scripture as something that needs to be developed in our lives. So we've looked at those virtues um, of the, uh, the life of, of uh, a person who's manifesting meekness. Just look to look at some of the permanent values um, for a moment. First of all, how our Heavenly Father prizes this quality. In... Um, 1 Peter 3 verse 4 is a very interesting exhortation here. Writing to wives who were finding it difficult to live with unconverted husbands, Peter said this, quote, commented them for a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Now that's remarkable. Something in the attitude Uh, the spiritual life of these women that was pleasing to God. It was something that he, the Lord, responded to. Peter's telling us that God prizes a meek and quiet spirit. 
And I suppose if that was the only text that we had on this point, it would be a sufficient motivation for us to pursue this issue, this matter of manifesting meekness in our lives, that our Heavenly Father prizes it. He gives it a big tick. The, the reverse, the pride and the arrogance and the self-sufficiency does not really fizz with the Lord, but this is something that he prizes clearly. The Father prizes it. The Son of God portrays it. In that, cha- that verse we read before from chapter 11 at verse 29, learn of me. For I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart. Learn of me. Receive the sort of quality that characterises my life and ministry. The Lord Jesus is saying it. God the Father prizes it. The Lord Jesus lives it, exemplifies it. In Philippians 2 verse 8, Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Son of God humbled himself and gave himself for us. So we've got the Father prizes it, the Son of God portrays it, and the Spirit of God produces it. Now we need to take this very seriously on board. If we go through those beautiful graces, those nine lovely graces in Galatians 5 verses 22 and 23 that constitute the fruit of the Spirit, this is where we find this humility, this humbleness of heart. It's one of those things that are the fruit of the Spirit of God. And what is fruit? It's something, the pawpaw tree in our backyard has, has pawpaws on it, of course. It bears fruit, but it's a process. It's not, they're not there and complete in one day. The Spirit of God works like that to produce fruit in our lives. It's an ongoing process of our Lord the Holy Spirit to produce this. Um, J.J. Rambach, the great German theologian of the 18th century, said, the He says, this is a fruit of the spirit which is found growing upon the field of spiritual poverty, repentance and sorrow, a precious flower which grows up out of the ashes of self-love and upon the grave of pride. When men on the one hand behold their own unworthiness, misery and danger, and on the other hand the kindness and gentleness of God in Christ. Well, whatever the Holy Spirit produces in our lives is going to be lasting. He brings forth fruit that will remain, and that is one of the desires of the heart of our God. Dr. Andrew Murray, um, um, he says, whatever the Holy, produce, Holy Spirit produces is of permanent value, and it is his supreme function to produce in us the humility of Christ in order that we might become truly humble servants of his. And he goes on, refers to it as the beauty of holiness. Well, we've got 
those thoughts, haven't we? The permanent values are because the Father prizes it. The Son of God exemplifies it. He portrays it by his life. And the Holy Spirit produces it in our lives as we live surrendered lives to him. We could look at... uh, I was going to saying that we might look at the um, victories of the selfless life, the contentment, that humility of the kind we're talking about here, contentment that it brings in our present life below. But, um, and we'll just mention that in passing, but it also refers to the attainment of, of the life that lies ahead. And in doing that, I want to just close with a reference to um, the great servant of God who is described as the most humble man, that is Moses, and the warning that his life brings to us that this is not an issue to be trifled with. It's not an optional extra. It's not something, a little bit of an add-on to the Christian life. This is an essential component of receiving of the life that we receive from our Lord Jesus Christ when we come to him. Do you recall the situation with Moses when instead of speaking to the rock, he smote the rock? He'd he'd already done that on a former occasion um, at God's command. This time in anger, not in humility, not in obedience, but in anger. He was fed up and understandably fed up with a grumbling mob who he'd been leading for years and years and who were totally unappreciative of what the leader was going through. And in his anger, he smote that rock. Now, there was a consequence for that. Moses didn't lose his status as a servant of the Lord and one who'll be with us in heaven or anything like that. But he, there were consequences He was not, because of that, the Lord spells it out to him, because of that action, he was not allowed to enter the land of promise. For 40 years he'd led the people towards it, through battles and goodness knows what and the controversies with with Pharaoh beforehand. He'd led them wonderfully, but he was now not going to enter the land of promise. There was a consequence for the exercise of the reverse of the meekness that God had imparted to him for his ministry and his life. And I mention that not because of the negative consequences, but just to underline to us that what our Lord Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 5 at verse 5 is a very important matter for authentic Christianity, for true Christian living. It is not based on the values and the practices and the attitudes that are conventional wisdom. It's based on that which is imparted by our Lord the Holy Spirit progressively as he bears that sort of fruit in our minds. And to just tidy up, I thought I'd quote um, one verse from that lovely hymn by James Martin Gray, where he says, and in case we start to get um, inflated ideas of our own significance, 
he, he picks up this thought beautifully and poetically. He says, Nought have I gotten but what I received. Grace has bestowed it. Grace is undeserved favour. Great is blessing, we don't know. Grace has bestowed it since I believed. Boasting excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. Let's not, none of us forget it, but to progress under the guidance and teaching and ministry of our Lord the Holy Spirit that we might um, rejoice in being exercised in the manner that our Saviour exhorts us to by this statement. Blessed are, they, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Loving Father, we want to thank you for your precious word. We want to thank you for giving to us many, many scriptures dealing with this matter. And we confess before you, Lord, that we have a natural tendency and set of tendencies that are contrary to what is being taught to us here. And it is our prayer together for each other and each of us for ourselves that we might be amongst those who are progressively exercised by the Holy Spirit, that he might bring forth this beautiful fruit in our lives, fruit that will please you, fruit that will remain, fruit that will be a blessing to those about us, for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.